So hello to those of you who came in a little bit late. Good to see you. I'm glad you came in. I'm glad we figured out how to unlock the door from afar. I talked about a similar theme uh, last week on retreat, and I'm always a little sensitive telling you the topic because I just say, tonight I'm going to talk about violence. And uh, there's a part of me that doesn't want to hear about violence anymore. And when I see it on the news, I want to change the station. And uh, so I imagine that maybe some of you are in a, you know, that if that's happening for me, it's probably happening for a lot of people. And, <clears throat> and at, if you've been coming regularly on Thursdays and reading Facebook stuff, even though I don't post there very much, you know that I've been thinking about what's happening in the world lately, particularly over the past couple of months, and uh, I've been teaching about it and doing a little bit of writing, and <clears throat> I'm still in that place. Uh, and part of teaching about what I've been observing in the world, particularly in the past two months, I realize has been an attempt to come up with answers, um, has been a, an attempt to deal with the insufficiency and, and some days an incompetence I feel uh, as a teacher of a tradition that aims itself toward wisdom and less suffering, and yet knowing that really uh, I don't have a lot of answers. Uh, and what's different today is that uh, to some extent I'm okay with that and see part of the resolution in really a shift in attitude and so to some extent that's what I'm that's what I'm talking about tonight um, so you know in simple language there was a, a moment and I think I shared this with you there was a moment after the uh, the bombing at the Istanbul airport in Turkey where it, it's almost like all of the different uh, yeah, sort of uh, single incidents of harm against almost always um, black men in our country coupled with uh, some violence or attempts at violence that never played out at uh, particularly the Los Angeles Gay Pride Parade and then Orlando and then and then even though it was really far away uh, what happened in Istanbul happened and it was as if my system couldn't hold anymore it's not that I wasn't paying attention to or feeling what was happening in those other places but for reasons that I still don't totally understand, there was a little bit of distance. You know, maybe because like a lot of us, it's actually not new. The, the violence um, that we do to one another is, is old news. So maybe I was a little bit numbed out, right? It's kind of, that's one of the things that I talked about last week is I talked about how numbing happens and the outcome of that, the reality of that. And and really, my, partly my choice to continue to talk about 
what is happening in the world is because uh, not for everybody but often there's a, a violent tragedy and we do talk about it for a couple of days but if it's not in our neighborhood or if it was uh, done to a person of color and we're not a person of color uh, that conversation or dialogue around the pain and what to do about it might fade away and so I become really interested in the fade away and how easy that is to happen so one of the things I'm interested in is <clears throat> is finding ways to talk about things that are hard to talk about in a way that's not oppressive and doesn't polarize any further and doesn't pathologize any one particular person or group of people but so that we can hold in our consciousness the reality of the world we live in <clears throat> while trying to together constructively find ways of both suffering less around it and supporting others uh, who are directly affected to hopefully eventually suffer much, much less. So that's sort of, that's my thinking. I want to say something about helplessness and I want to say something about hope. Uh, <clears throat> I, and, and really I already said this just in my short introduction tonight, but when I really let in, really feel the magnitude of what's happening, the complexity of it, when I try to rationalize how it is that so many people could become so interested in harming others, consciously or unconsciously. When I, when I try to make sense of that, I get overwhelmed because uh, cognitively I can't integrate. I actually, there's not, a, I can't answer that question. Like I can't make sense of it in, in, that, in that way in any conventional mode of analysis or, or cognition. Uh, so, I get, so I get really, really overwhelmed and it's not an overwhelm that shuts me down. It makes me want to turn away, but there's a kind of frustration that comes from that. And as I said earlier, I, I think that uh, part of the frustration is that I do feel a responsibility as a teacher to guide to the best I can uh, a path that has as an outcome some resolution, right? And so there's a sense of uh, living in a world that is really uh, deeply challenging personally, right? And what do I do about that? But um, in a unique way, uh, the, the, the influx of so many emotions and my inability to, in the short term, always know how to respond to local and global suffering Coupled with my own, uh, <clears throat> coupled with my own vulnerability, um, has also sometimes a flavor of hope. And it took, it took a, a month of really daily sitting with this question and journaling and talking about it. Uh, it really took a, a, a while to come in contact with this sense of hope. And it and it had to do. And I'll try to say more about this before I turn it over to you. It had to do something with giving up that grasping and clinging for answers. Like, I'm going to come in front of the room and I'm going to say, okay, this is the reality of racism and this is what I think we should do about it, right? Uh, so it's more about wanting to be in conversation and relationship with people, 
um, and seeing that as a legitimate path, uh, seeing that as a legitimate path. And then I was uh, very recently, since I've been back from the from the two retreats I taught, I went to see, I finally was able to go see the Music of Strangers, the Yo-Yo Ma mm -hmm. documentary that I gave a talk up about like a month and a half ago. Gave a talk about that movie before I saw the movie. Disclaimer. Um, but really the talk about was what I had learned from a Boston Globe article. and Actually somebody sent me uh, an email saying that they had found the the talk I had given online, listened to it, went and saw the movie, and the mo movie was really inspired, inspiring to them, and that's how I knew it was playing in my neighborhood. <laughs> so they reminded me to go see it. Um, and in the film, by the way, I, I did find it to be extremely well done and, and deeply, uh, deeply motivating. Um, there's an Iranian musician featured who is one of Yo-Yo Ma's, uh, someone Yo-Yo Ma got very close close to, and, and, and a significant portion of the film follows this Iranian musician and, and to some extent, so much of the crisis that has been, uh, that that country has been dealing with. And there was a point in time when this musician the, the violence in uh, uh, politics in Iran were such that this person was not allowed back in his own country. He was, you know, his life would have been threatened if he had gone home. And uh, so the story really chronicled his, uh, the tension that that <coughs> created for him. He was off in the world living his dream as a musician and you know, I, I think they, I think they, the uh, Silk Road Ensemble played in 33 different countries repeatedly. So, you know, really an opportunity for all of them uh, to to see the world and to meet a lot of different kinds of people. And they would go around and they would do community service projects. And they were really uh, noble global citizens, if you will. Very, they appeared to me to be very generous and kind. <coughs> And uh, so this, this, this story, in part, uh, conveyed you know, how difficult it can be to, uh, to not be able to go home. Sometimes we actually can't go home. And the, the musician was being interviewed, and at one point he said, he said, you know, I was really frustrated, and then it struck me one day that the range of emotions, both how many emotions I've had to learn to deal with, if you will, and the significance or depth of them, just how hard any individual one was to integrate, was such that I absolutely had to give up prior ways of thinking and knowing, and I, and I, and I had to learn, I had to learn anew how to feel at an entirely different level. And then he talked about how, as a musician, his way of learning how to do that was to begin to feel and translate feeling through his music. So ultimately what he was saying was 
that he understood chaos ultimately to be a vehicle for creativity and for creation. And, you know, I heard that from him while I was wrestling myself with so much of this uh, current global crisis. And I heard it like a crystal, crystal clear Dharma teaching. And some of these um, different pieces that I was holding started to come together in the context of that very simple, very simple wisdom. So what I'm inclined to point toward as having value is not knowing. In myself, I find some liberation in that. Not only do I have to, not only do I not have to come up with the answers, but that the answers that might come, perhaps they'll be different than what I would have come up with if I used the information I had available to me the range of emotions that I'm willing to let in, if I, if I operated from that place, uh, or rather if I don't restrict myself from operating from that place, maybe there'll be another possibility. So I, I thought this morning, I had a cup of tea and I just sat and I, said, I, I, I asked myself, you know, I didn't go to any Dharma text, I didn't go to the suttas, and you know that I like to integrate the suttas into what we, what we do here. And I just said, and I said, okay, well, what is the value of not knowing? Now, I am thinking through a Dharma lens when I'm doing this, but I'm not trying to source a teaching for you uh, from the teachings, right? So the first thing I came up with, that this idea of not knowing, and, and, and so we could just say openness or receptivity, is that it really demands a reflective, or I really like the word contemplative, relationship to life, right? It, we, um, it, it begs of us to take and hold and live with questions and allow them to be unanswered, right? And you can, you can apply this framework to anything in your life. What's your relationship going to be to relationship? What's your relationship going to be to money? What's your relationship going to be to vocation, to your family, to your trauma, to your addiction, right? So what is the role of not knowing? Secondly, it requires I and we, potentially, if this is of value to you, to look deeper at ourselves and at prevailing social and cultural norms. Right? Three, that it demands we don't employ quick fix, quick fix strategies that are likely to be sourced from the same consciousness that underlie greed, hatred, and delusion. It demands that we don't employ quick fix strategies that are likely to be sourced from the same consciousness, the same ideas, views, concepts, beliefs, and perceptions that underlie, instead of greed, hatred, and delusion, I could say that underlie or that condition my normal way of problem solving. That's what reactivity is, actually. Even, even reactivity at its best, when it's not deeply unskillful, it's still utilizing some skill set or knowledge base that I've, I have acquired up until this point. Right? So what is it like to look beyond that? <coughs> Four... It demands that we learn to sit with our pain and discomfort and confusion. 
So I think this is really important. How much of my own grasping for an answer to violence done uh, to certain ethnic groups, to people of color, um, to um, people with a different sexual or gender orientation than me, et cetera, et cetera. How much of all of that uh, is noble, to use a Buddhist term, and how much of it is me just not wanting to be uncomfortable, right? So that, so that gets interesting. And for those of you who are interested in looking explicitly at, at uh, race, one of the things that we're, we're starting to willing to be, we're starting to be better at being honest about is that even when, um, even when people, white people or people of privilege come forward to participate in that what will probably be a, a, a long-term task of healing racism, um, we tend to come in with the assumption that we'll figure it out. Right, and that's and then, and then there's a there's a there and then, and then we we take away the opportunity for deep dialogue, or then then we say, okay, well, you tell me what to do to make things better for you, and then we burden the already oppressed with that task. Right? So this is complicated. We're not, you know, I'm trying to acknowledge how complicated it is and simply advocate uh, for a radical not knowing that would have an openness and receptivity in it. Um, that might result in new answers. Fresh insight, this is an insight tradition, right? How do we not live based on reactivity and conditioning, but do things new, do things afresh? And then ultimately, not knowing requires us really to be in dialogue, and I would say, therefore, in relationship. And that's where, that's where I'm really at with this, and you'll, you'll, you'll see that I'm not even gonna, uh, at least tonight, I'm not even gonna talk that much. I'm really, re and I saw, and you know where, where this, the value of this stood out for me was on this last retreat, uh, I decided that I wouldn't give traditional, we call them wisdom talks because we're not using Buddhist language, so we take the word Dharma out of it. And I said, I'm not going to give a wisdom talk. I'm not going to give an hour-long talk. I'm going to have a conversation and see what happens. And what these 15 to 19-year-old young people were able to articulate in terms of their, their suffering and their pain and their confusion, but also the ways the practice helps them, and the way community coming together and just having the space to have these conversations help them, it really blew my mind. Um, you know, we all have ideas, and, and just having the ability to hear other people uh, can be normalizing and uh, insightful, liberating, <coughs> etc. can be very, very helpful. Okay, so the last thing I'll do is I'll share with you a, a short list. This was, a, this was the second reflection I did this morning. Uh, same thing, I'm, I'm still sitting in my backyard and I said, okay, well, again, without going to the, without going to the teachings per se, in, in, a, in a classical sense, how does the Dharma help, right? Because one of my frustrations has been, you know, not only 
you know, having been practicing for 20 years and coming to meditation in part because I couldn't integrate or understand the level of violence and greed and hatred that was in the world. So I gotta, I, you know, I have to find a way out of this. Uh, and I start, I started meditating. And part of my recent frustration is, you know, it's like looking back on my life and thinking, wow, I've been doing this for 20 years. So 20 years has gone by. And uh, I look at the newspaper and I look on TV and I don't see a lot of kindness, right? And then the second thought was, damn, this tradition that I've been committed to for 20 years, uh, you know, it was sort of like, well, how much of a shift has the meditation community offered, right? And, and, and so I started to, uh, you know, what's it going to take, you know? What's it going to take? So, um, personally, I still find a great uh, strength of hope in the work that we do, in these teachings and what they advocate for, and how they do that to the degree that really we come to see our mind. We really come to see our mind in this practice. And when, and I'm only referring to, to one retreat because I just came from this teen retreat, um, and having spoken at length with these young people every, every day it, 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 who are speaking through the lens of uh, mindfulness meditation practice, uh, completely convinced leaving that retreat, uh, having heard them uh, convey how they saw themselves differently leaving the retreat than when they came in uh, after seeing their capacity to sit still and hold all kinds of trauma in their lives and really sit with it and be with it and then uh, articulate it and watch them show up for one another and give each other hugs and uh, really watch the kind of jockeying for position and ego and uh, that we see you know at home in the neighborhoods and playgrounds to see all of that wash away uh, and to see kindness, to see generosity uh, in uh, all these young people who, you know, in a sense really have a lot to fight for and really have to protect themselves. And so to see the guard and the shield go away, um, and that's only a five-day retreat, you know. So how can meditation, how can meditation possibly help? Well, we can notice our own expressions of violence. And, and after sitting with how to work with personally, respond, integrate, teach about the violence in the world, this is, what, this, is the, this is really the last insight I had. And it wasn't until I kept catching myself, like these little, these little moments of... Um, my own ability to be violent, right? Just seeing it and like, and then, and then seeing the conditioning that I've developed, which prohibits me from seeing or, or being willing to look at all those, those nuances, right? Of violence, if you will. So judgment of others, right? I'm guessing I'm not the only one in the room who judges others. <laughs> Ill will. And this is, this is a great one. Like, oh, well, 
I judge others, yeah, but I don't ever want anyone to be unwell or to have, you know, pain, to have them be on the receipt. But every now and again, the mind can, like, like I'm just going to tell that person what, like, I'm going to make them feel worse than I do right now. These little, and it can be so subtle. It can be so subtle. But then also just the, the violence that we direct toward ourselves through negative self-talk. Right? There's all these cliches from, from probably most spiritual traditions. I'm not well-versed in all spiritual traditions, but, you know, the Buddhist tradition and the uh, many variations of uh, Christian faith thought uh, says that we really have to love ourselves if we're going to, you know, really have an impact on the world. And uh, sounds a little cliche, and how true is that, you know? And if, if you really develop your meditation practice, one of the things that you'll see is how unkind you are to... Even, even, this is so-so, even just not letting yourself have the experience you're having. Even just trying to make you be something different or feel something different in the next 30 minutes before Chris rings the bell. Right? So the second thing we notice in meditation practice, and I talk about this a lot, so if, you, if, if you've been coming for a while, you hear me often talk about seeing clearly the universality of suffering. There's a particular kind of way, this practice, this insight tradition is so good, particularly on retreat, so good at showing the universality of suffering. And what I mean by that is there are times in the practice when you simply recognize and feel pain or distress or anxiousness or what really the tradition calls dukkha, this added layer of suffering that we add on top of the normal pain of life based on how we relate to life. There's a way in which uh, the practice allows us to see that uh, simultaneous, if you will, with the absence of a real distinct sense of self. And then we see, oh, this is woven into the fabric of being a human being. And at that point, we understand everyone is experiencing dukkha, right? And that's really, really valuable. Everybody else is experiencing dukkha. Everyone else is having a hard time, sometimes, or a lot of the time, right? So another way the practice helps potentially is that we notice the truth of greed. We notice the truth of greed. How so much, how so much thought and energy is directed toward preserving myself. Right? And this really limits deep connection. Right? This is happening all the time. You're listening to somebody, right? And you're like listening 25% because you're just caught up in your own stuff. Right? How much time do you spend thinking about the future? Right? All the things you want but m might not have, or etc. All, all very uh, nuanced expressions of greed. Like how often are, you, are, are, are we totally just available to the situation and to the people in our company? Right? Number four, we notice the complexity 
and the problem of our own perceptions or of perception in general, we come to see that how we see the world is often not true in the ultimate sense. So when we start to develop this kind of insight, we are more free when we let go of fixed views. We understand that. We are happier and more contented when generosity prevails over anything that's me first. And this is really important, I think. When we see that outside the law of impermanence, there is little, if anything, that is true or lasting, this means that no person is intrinsically deserving of safety, love, kindness, or equality more than any other person. Do you see that? The idea that any, any kind of person is intrinsically more deserving of anything has no basis at all whatsoever. We cannot investigate thoroughly any such view of perception and find truth in it, period. So you can come back and you say, well, uh, you know, there's a long-standing cultural view that this group of people is fill in the blank and this group of people have not. Yeah, it's a cultural view. Just because lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of people have agreed that something is a particular way does not mean it's intrinsically true. Right, we know that. And the last uh, possible value of the practice that we do together is that we learn to be with experience. We learn to be with all experience. Our own capacity to remain present to what is occurring within ourselves and within the world around us is a requirement for change. This is a requirement for change. Not shutting down or closing is a foundation for insight. Not shutting down or closing is a foundation. Actually, it's a requirement for insight, understanding, and compassion to arise. And, you know, ultimately, in my view, that's a foundation for hope, right? So the practice really allows, whether we have answers or not, we have to be willing to engage. We have to stay. This practice, I don't know if I framed it this way first or a student did, but I, I know for sure on a Skype session once I was working with a student in California and, and, and like it was like a light bulb went off. We were having a conversation and she said, this is really developing the muscle of staying, isn't it? Like just staying present, right? It's so, so true. So I, I have two questions uh, that I'd like to ask you, uh, and maybe one of them is a relevant question for you. I, I'm interested and genuinely quite curious about how it is that you relate to personal or social suffering or, or violence. How What's happening for you? Are you shutting down? Are you able to engage it? Do you talk with friends? Is it better for you not to talk? I mean, how are, how are you experiencing this? And how does your practice help? How does your meditation practice help? Or how does being in community help? Uh, so just be interested in where you're at 